text today is from John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward called to the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, pour out your grace upon our need this morning. Amen. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you've ever done much in the way of writing, you probably know that the beginning is, uh, can be the hardest part. Whether I'm writing a story or a research paper or a letter or especially a sermon, I find that I spend more time on the beginning than on any other section. And if you think about it, that makes sense, for the beginning has to carry a lot of weight. It has to set the tone for everything to follow, and it will color the audience's reactions uh, to what they hear. So it's interesting to look at the beginning of the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see how these four writers choose to begin their inspired accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, Mark starts simply and abruptly. Mark simply starts with this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then immediately introduces John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. Matthew and Luke take a more thorough approach. Matthew opening with a genealogy and uh, Luke with the uh, historic accounts of the events surrounding Jesus' birth. Uh, They both cover the same ground, though highlighting different details. John, on the other hand, the gospel we're hearing from today, takes a very different tack. John starts with this poetic prologue, a a hymn of sorts, uh, to God's creative word, the word that was with God and was God, and he tells us that this word became flesh and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. Right from the outset, just from the first page or two of these four gospels, you get a sense of what they're going to be like. Mark seems to be interested in simplicity and action, getting right to the point. Matthew is interested in Jesus as the fulfillment of these ancient prophecies, this long-promised Emmanuel, God with us. Luke is, uh, has a historian's interest. He's taking many different perspectives into account, especially those perspectives that are often left out, the perspectives of foreigners, of the poor, of women. 
And John, it seems, is going to be interested in a story behind the story, telling a story of Jesus so flowery, so full of ineffable divine truth, that Jesus in John's gospel almost seems to hover about three feet off the ground. Or it would seem that way if it weren't for our story today, anyway. I mean, isn't it odd that the very first miracle of Jesus reported by John is the changing of water into wine? None of the other gospels mention this one, by the way. Only John talks about this. I mean, where the other gospels all find Jesus making a name for himself with uh, healings of the sick or or driving out demons, uh, John's gospel tells of Jesus providing alcohol at a poorly planned wedding. I mean, it's not the sort of thing you organize a mission trip around. Even apart from the content of the miracle, it's strange that it's carried out in such a low-key way. I mean, it almost didn't happen at all. If Mary, Jesus' mother, hadn't been so determined, first letting Jesus know about the lack of wine and then ignoring Jesus' protest of it not being their business, mothers are good at that, by the way, you get the sense that none of this would have taken place. There's no element of spectacle here. There's no showmanship on the part of Jesus. There's no hand-waving. There's no long prayers or prayers at all. There's no action of any sort that would draw attention to what he's doing. Jesus simply has the servants fill these jugs of water, scoop some out to give to the chief steward, and the water has somehow become wine, really, really good wine. I mean, for comparison, the first miracle recounted in Mark's gospel, merely 21 verses in, still on the first page, right at the beginning, is Jesus entering the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he astounds everyone there with his teaching, and then he's loudly confronted by a demon-possessed man who calls Jesus the Holy One of God. Jesus, of course, promptly casts out the demon, and everyone is amazed, and his fame spreads throughout the region. But here in John's gospel, here at this wedding, most people don't even know anything unusual has occurred. The chief steward, the bridegroom, the guests, none of them have any reason to notice that anything is out of the ordinary, except perhaps that the wine has taken a noticeable upturn in quality. Only the servants the disciples and Jesus's mother have any knowledge that a miracle just took place. And of those, Jesus's mother and the disciples already knew something was special with Jesus. Really, it seems like an odd way to start out the story of Jesus's ministry. And the whole thing feels a bit like a missed opportunity. I mean, from a writer's perspective. Until that is, we read that last sentence that the narrator narrator uses to sum up the story. I mean, verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I mean, let me read that again. There's three things here to notice. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I mean, clearly our evangelist thinks something more is going on here than just wine at a wedding. There's three things I want to highlight here in this verse. So first is that first of the signs. More than any other gospel, John's gospel emphasizes again and again that the miracles of Jesus are signs. There's something that point beyond themselves, like John the Baptist pointing at Jesus. In fact, there's one uh, traditional way of interpreting John's gospel is to split it into two, into two books. The first half called the Book of Signs, which starts here and goes to just before the Last Supper, 
Uh, and then the book of glory, which recounts uh, the Last Supper, his arrest, his crucifixion, his resurrection uh, as the second half of the, of, of the Gospel of John. The book of signs then is understood to be structured around these seven miracle stories, these seven signs, which reveal Jesus to be God in the flesh. And these particular signs are not chosen at random. They are, they are included for a purpose, a purpose which is told to us directly near the end of the gospel. In John 20, verses 30 and 31, we read this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. I mean, clearly John has a lot of examples to choose from. I mean, he says so himself at the end of the gospel. He says, if everything Jesus did was written down, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But he chose only these few, fewer than any of the other gospel writers, even though his gospel is longer. He chose only these few. He was picky about his miracle stories. And he chose this particular miracle to set the tone for what was to come. So that's the first thing to notice, that this is the first of his signs. The second is to notice the effect of this miracle. His disciples believed in him. Somehow, this quiet miracle of turning water into wine, far from the most impressive miracle of Jesus, was enough to perform another miracle. It created faith in his disciples. It caused his disciples to believe in him. That's no small thing. Now, of course, we know today that believing in Jesus is a big deal, but nowhere is it a bigger deal than it is in John's gospel in particular, because John is exceptionally clear that believing in Jesus is what makes the difference between life and death. It is by trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, living by faith in Jesus, that we have life in his name. As we will read in a couple of weeks, for example, God gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. And here, all it took for eternal life to be given was the simple miracle of turning water into wine. Third thing I want you to notice is that phrase in the middle, it revealed his glory. Not only was this, the first, uh, this miracle the first of Jesus' signs, not only did it create faith in his disciples, but here Jesus' glory is revealed, his character, who he is, and in what way he is glorious in the world. So what kind of glory is it? Is it the glory of the law? Is it the glory of Moses impressively and sternly descending the fiery mountain carrying the tablets with, God, uh, with God's commandments? Or is it uh, the civil power, this glory of civil power of Pilate, the Roman governor surrounded by soldiers as he enters Jerusalem? No, this glory is of a different sort. It's a glory, as we read, full of grace and truth, a glory from whose fullness we receive grace upon grace. It's the glory of the only begotten Son of God at the prompting of his mother, quietly providing the equivalent of hundreds of bottles of wine to spare his hosts the embarrassment of running out and to cause his chosen, his disciples, to trust in him. In this story, we encounter God quietly providing for the needs of his hosts, needs of which they may not have even been aware. 
This God in the flesh, this man, Jesus Christ, well, he's the same today as he was then, and he is even now providing for you in ways you can't even imagine. True, you feel your needs deeply, and you worry just what might happen if those needs aren't filled, but Jesus Christ knows them better than you ever will. No need of yours is too small for his attention. And despite what you may feel, he is providing. Now, his providing may not come in the way you would choose. The needs that you give top priority may be well down the list by his reckoning, but Jesus knows the fullness of your need far better than even you. And Jesus knows when they must be met and when they must give way to a greater eternal need. For Jesus' fullness is more than enough to fill what you lack, and his love for you will not be quenched. And though his timing is different from yours, and though his priorities can seem irritating, his intention for you is more than mere survival, but life abundant, life everlasting. So like an abundance of wine at an underplanned wedding, Jesus himself provides what you need. His life, his love, they are sufficient for you. His grace never stops fulfilling your need. Amen.